Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. In this episode, we will be interviewing Dr. Martin Benzik from Nottingham Trent University. He will be here talking to us about some of his latest research on interpreting the sounds that queen honeybees make and using that information to predict when colonies will swarm. In our second segment, we'll be joined by Dr. Malcolm Sanford, a former professor here at the University of Florida, and we'll be talking about his career as an extension specialist here at the university. And of course, the podcast would not be complete without everyone's favorite segment, Stump the Chump, or Questions and Answers. All right, listeners, we have an academic treat for you this morning. Amy and I are, are at our respective homes, and we are recording this podcast. It's at, actually July 1st, 2020. And back in June, just last month, a very interesting manuscript was published. It's called The Prediction of Swarming in Honeybee Colonies Using Vibrational Spectra. That uh, paper was published in Scientific Reports. I know it's important to beekeepers because a few beekeepers have shared it with me to ask me my thoughts about it. It's going to be linked in the show notes so that after you listen to this today's podcast uh, segment on this topic, you can go back and read the paper for yourself. To talk about this manuscript and the findings with us, we are joined by Dr. Martin Benchik, who's an associate professor in the School of Science and Technology from Nottingham Trent University, that's in the UK. Dr. Benchik, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this chat. <laughs> me too. So, Dr. Benchik. Benchik, is that how you say it? That's how you say it. It's a Hungarian uh, word, family name. Oh, very nice. It's, very, it's a very beautiful name. So, can you tell us about yourself and kind of your beekeeping journey? We love to hear everybody's story, how they kind of got into beekeeping, and if you're not a beekeeper, I, you know, how you got into beekeeping research. So, we'd love to hear just about you and, and your journey. Sure. So, uh, both my mom and dad are Hungarian. Beekeeping is, is a big thing in Hungary and uh, also in Yugoslavia, further down the south in Europe. So uh, my dad uh, started uh, beekeeping in his uh, 40s and I was a very young child and uh, I was surrounded by bees being a little boy and uh, very much hated it. Uh, my dad took me to the apiary. <laughs> uh, I helped him doing some of the beekeeping. Bees always uh, buzzing around me. It was really annoying me. I got stung on numerous occasions and uh, uh, as a start uh, of uh, an encounter with honeybees, it was very unpleasant, but he gave me the opportunity to uh, spin the honey and uh, he promised me the income of selling the honey if I did so. So uh, for my own uh, pocket money, I started uh, spinning the honey every summer. And yes, indeed, uh, any jar that I sold, he let me have the income for my own pocket. 
So actually, uh, that was quite lucrative. I could buy my lemonade, uh, the odd uh, new tire <laughs> for my bicycle when needed. And um, people loved the honey and it was very satisfying. That's part of the beekeeping. So I, I kept go going with this until uh, probably uh, being a teenager. And then uh, I had to stop. I studied at the university. I did my military service, etc. And then uh, settled down uh, in the United Kingdom, where I became uh, an academic. And uh, I was still uh, not particularly interested in uh, beekeeping, in bees or insects. But uh, we then had a, a boy, my wife and I. My wife is British. I'm married in England. And uh, when we had uh, our boy one morning for breakfast, we were sitting uh, in our uh, kitchen with a window onto the garden. And uh, there was a cobweb uh, outside on the corner of the window. And uh, the three of us were having breakfast and I uh, walked out into the garden. I carefully picked up an ant and I deposited it onto the cobweb. And uh, my son, he was two years old and he became absolutely transfixed at uh, witnessing the spider detecting the presence of the ant by the vibrations that were taking place in the cobweb. And then uh, the uh, spider made a beeline to the ant and uh, wrapped it around with silk and stored it. And uh, it was a fascinating phenomenon for him to witness in the first time. And following this, uh, it was impossible to go out on a walk with my son without him stopping at every spider cobweb <laughs> that he saw making sure he picked up an ant and making sure he fed carefully every <laughs> single ant we encountered uh, on our walks. So um, because of that, he actually became uh, very, very uh, interested in spiders and insects, and he would pick up any insect and any spider that uh, we had on our walks. And because of that, and because he was little, I had to... Uh, I had to hold a spider in my hand on numerous occasions with him. And uh, obviously I was a grown up uh, man next to my two years old boy. And there was no way I would escape that thing which wasn't particularly uh, attracting me to have a, a spider in my hands. But I soon uh, did it to help him, to help his passion. And I soon realized uh, that there was uh, no problem at all holding uh, a spider in my hands. In fact, quite the opposite. I very soon enjoyed it. And I was amazed at the beauty of a spider, uh, witnessing her or him in my hand, crawling around me. And I soon forgot any particular uh, feeling of being put off that I used to have as a child, of having an insect uh, crawling on me. And so that started with the spiders when my uh, boy was two years old. And uh, it uh, moved on into the insect world. And uh, I now enjoy nothing more than to have honeybees uh, crawling on my hand. I just put <laughs> my hand in front of my honeybee hive and they all start landing on it and crawling on it. And it's an amazing pleasure and privilege to have an insect uh, crawling on my hand now, whilst uh, when I was a boy, it's something that really would uh, put me off. So this is the start uh, of uh, my relationship with the honeybees and uh, the continuation of it. And now it's a real pleasure to witness them, to monitor them closely, to watch them and to have them on my hands. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I love it now.
I think I think that that journey is really interesting from selling honey for lemonade money <laughs> when you were a boy all the way up to holding spiders as an adult to try to impress and your son, but also learn with your son. I think uh, we we all have like similarly interesting journeys into the bee world. You've now found yourself as a faculty member at Nottingham Trent University. You do research with bees. When I was looking up some of your resume. I noticed that that your research is not necessarily originally with with entomology. You've got a lot of sound vibratory work, which ultimately paired significantly with what we're actually going to talk to you about today. You guys just published this interesting manuscript, The Prediction of Swarming in Honeybee Colonies Using Vibrational Spectra. And the thing that's interesting to me is this, this manuscript really does two things. Number one, it introduces us into... Uh, to the topic of queens and their ability to communicate using sounds. And then secondarily, it, it teaches us about swarming and how to predict it. So I really want the rest of our interview to kind of focus on those two aspects. So to kind of kick this off, before we get to the swarming process and talk about what all of that means and how to predict it, I want you to talk a little bit, if you will, about what is a quack or a toot. You talk about that in the manuscript. The, the terms that I'm familiar with, with queens, is I'm familiar with piping. I've, I've seen queens pipe many, many times. You know, they'll, as you note in your manuscript, they, they press their thorax to the, to the um, wax and they make that <laughs> sound, which is <laughs> nearly perfect. Able to there's, do there's, that. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's queens everywhere responding to me right now. But, but nevertheless, th- there's these other terms. I've even heard Tom Seeley and others talk about these quacks, these toots. So what is piping? What is quacking? What is tooting? And when is each done? Do honeybees toot? <laughs> Not in the sense that you're asking <laughs> me. <laughs> okay. So that's a very good question. We are actually presently trying to find a generic, uh, a generic definition for what uh, a pipe might be. So beekeepers and scientists have been using the word uh, pipe for a long time. And uh, when you start listening into bees and uh, listening into the vibrations they make, you often will realize that they are incredibly short pulses, typically a tenth of a second, typically the time it takes for you to click your fingers. This is the kind of pulses uh, honeybees and other insects most often deliver. However, in the case of uh, honeybees, there can be instances of a longer pulse, perhaps half a second, perhaps one second long pulse, or perhaps uh, in the case of the queen, many seconds, six to 15 to 20 seconds long vibration. And then uh, I would say that this is what scientists and beekeeping start referring to as being a pipe. So a pipe is uh, what you would uh, hear as a sound, but it's actually a vibration produced by a bee, which is more than uh, a snappy tenth of a second pulse. It's it's usually half a second to a second. So it goes boop, something like this, a tone for half a second to a second. That is a pipe. That's what we understand under the terminology pipe. Now there are worker pipes, so a worker bee can do a toot sound, uh, but the most spectacular pipes come from the queen, and the queen uh, can pipe for many, many seconds, and there are two different types of pipes that the queen can deliver, and the tooting is one of the two pipes, and the quacking is the second of the two pipes that the queen can deliver. Have I answered your question? 
Absolutely. I think that's key to think about it. So a pipe is the general term for the vibratory noise that queens can make. And there are two types, the quack and the toot. So, so when do queens use them? How, how do they use them? So most uh, often, the toots and the quacks are heard immediately after the primary swarm. The primary swarm is your old queen, the, the queen that was fertile for the last year. She leaves your colony with half your bees. Most often, this is a silent phenomenon. There are no uh, queen pipes associated with this uh, phenomenon, except very, very occasionally. So we can come back to that later on in, in this chat. But when your old queen leaves, this is called a primary swarm, and this is usually a silent phenomenon not associated with any queen pipes whatsoever. And then you have a few days of silence in the colony, perhaps uh, six to seven days of silence, followed by the uh, clear appearance of the queen pipes uh, coming from virgin queens that are either uh, that have either emerged from their queen cells or they may be still locked inside their queen cells. The first virgin queen that emerges, we call the, these virgin queens the gynes, G-Y-N-E. The first one uh, to emerge is tooting. She goes, ooh, 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 ooh. this is a tooting. And it comes from a free-roaming, free-running giant queen, virgin queen, in your colony. And each time you hear this uh, tooting, if you have other queens in your colony, they will respond by the quacking. And the quacking goes quack, 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 quack. Sometimes for up to 20 seconds, you will hear this response. And when you witness this and when you hear it, you will, have, uh, you will be convinced that uh, it's uh, a tooting that stimulates a quack as a response. Why? Because you get silence, then you get a toot, whoop, 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 after the silence, and immediately after the toot, you get the quack, the quacking. And then the silence for a minute, and then another toot, and responded by quack. So there is uh, definitely a human perception that it's queen's... Uh, communicating amongst each other. And there is definitely the perception that uh, a tooting is uh, a challenging call, which is responded uh, by the quacking. Let me, let me ask quickly, Martin. I, I know Amy's got a question she wants to ask you, but this brings up a lot of questions that I'm intrigued by as a scientist. I have so, so many questions. <laughs> yeah, is, is a quack a toot that's heard from inside of a cell? I mean, are they, are they truly different sounds or are you just hearing a toot mm -hmm. from a queen that's completely enclosed in a wax cell. And you know, it'd be like asking, you know, if, if, if I'm in the room with my wife and we're talking, that's one sound. But if I'm in this room and close the door and now I'm talking to her through a closed door, she might be hearing a different sound. So, but are, are, are quacks and toots absolutely different? Differences in frequency, differences in lengths of time and pattern and all that as well. What a fantastic question. They are definitely different signals. In particular, the tooting is always a first long burst of uh, three to four seconds of a continuous tone. It starts with this. 
the quacking is never starting with this long pulse. The quack just goes quack, 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 quack. Fascinating. Quack. So uh, there is absolutely no doubt that they are different signals. Absolutely no doubt. And uh, mm -hmm. the most uh, uh, dominant difference is this long initial tone, which is taking place only in the tooting. Wow, that's amazing. I, it's just incredible. And I, I just want to know how long it's taken you to practice that toot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, say, I don't know who's. I don't know who sounded better. Is his or mine? Like I, I feel like we should. We should have a toot off at the colony and see if we can. You know, he can do it. I can do it. We can see if Queen's response. Anyway, uh, toot off. <laughs> toot off. Well, I was about to say I must just not be in the industry long enough because I don't have a sound that I'm able to make like you guys can. But I'll definitely practice. <laughs> Try harder. <laughs> I think rather than being impressed by uh, how long I practice, you would be most impressed by. Uh, how many hours I have listened to this <laughs> Well, on that note, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how you guys conducted the experiment? I mean, I know that there's probably a lot that went into it, but just generally speaking for our audience, um, how did you guys go through this experiment to show this? So uh, what is uh, unique to our measurement is uh, that we are doing continuous recordings for colonies with no interruption. So we have written software on a simple computer, which allows us to record the uh, vibrations continuously every second of the day, every day of the year for several years. So we have continuous acoustic log, vibrational log of, of colonies and of multiple colonies. So uh, we have uh, a complete overview of the occurrences of tooting and quacking in multiple colonies during the swarming season before and after. So we are the only group in the world to have exhaustive recordings every second of the day, every day of the year of these vibrational signals in multiple colonies. And from that, we ended up being in a very strong position to draw conclusions about the instances of these signals, when do they take place, under which circumstances, and how do they lock in, in the timings of the swarming, the primary swarm, the secondary, the tertiary, and so on and so forth. Hmm. What sort of equipment do you guys use to, to examine this? Uh, so uh, we assemble it. I am fortunate to come from a, a background that allows me to assemble equipment. I am actually a physicist. I'm not a beekeeper. I am not a honeybee scientist. I am not a biologist, but I can knock up equipment. This is what I've been trained to do. And uh, we assemble the equipment ourselves. We purchase the vibration sensor separately from the amplifiers, from the computer. We write mm -hmm. the software. So we assemble it uh, all together. But forgive me, I've forgotten your question. What did you ask? <laughs> How you guys conducted the experiment. Oh, and, and what, what tools you guys used. Okay, so we use a vibration sensor, which is in the colony. This is, uh, this is called an accelerometer. I'm sorry for the long word. It's a little uh, cube which uh, has no exposed surface. So you can plunge it into the honeycomb and it won't deteriorate the performance of the sensor. And there's a little cable that comes out of your hive. It goes to uh, a sound card of a computer to log the vibrations. And then the computer records it. And uh, we record it, record it, record it. And then we write software to examine 
the instances of the tooting and the quacking and lots of other signals coming from honeybees. So in a nutshell, that's how the method is. Wow. Uh, so that's, that's a really great story. In fact, I think it's probably your background in physics and other, other things like that that allowed you to make these novel contributions. Oftentimes in the bee world, we kind of think about it from the bee perspective because that's all we've seen and done. But it, it helps to have people from, you know, who are not bee scientists to help unravel some of the mysteries of bees, I believe. So I want to read a quote from the manuscript that you guys wrote, because I think it's appropriate as we transition from talking about quacking and tooting to talking about predicting swarms. And you say in the introduction of the manuscript, usually the primary swarm, that's the one that, that leads with the old queen. Usually the primary swarm is not preceded by piping. You've already stated that, but nevertheless, we've also endeavored in this study to carefully examine the pipes logged within our continuous vibrational data sets, which you just mentioned, as it seems to strongly support the theory that tooting and quacking are produced to inform the worker bees about the need to release or keep captive unemerged virgin queens. So for our listeners, that simply means that once the, the primary swarm is left with the old queen and she's taken you know, 30 to 70% of the workers, the first virgin queen to emerge will go around tooting, the other virgins in their cells will quack. The workers will keep those virgins in those cells until that next swarm is issued. And that, you know, that first virgin to emerge, when she leaves with that next swarm, there's the absence of tooting. Therefore, the workers can uh, allow the next, you know, quacking queens to emerge, as it were. So that's very fascinating. So let's transition then to how this, this, this brings some applied you say in your study, you know, you make the claim that you can predict swarming with over 90% accuracy just by listening for these specific sounds. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So uh, in my job, uh, the way this works in the UK, in the USA, and um, in most other countries is that we have an idea. We want to demonstrate it and uh, we seek for funding to allow us to run the study and do a professional job in demonstrating something. So this is how my profession works. And I had the idea to uh, predict the swarming and I knocked up a project to uh, convince a funding body that we would uh, prove that. Then we secured the funding and then we ran the study. So in, the, in this process, I uh, wrote entirely the project on the prediction of the primary swarm, the one which uh, we think where we know is most often silent. So the primary swarm again is the, your first uh, old queen. It's the first swarm you get in the spring and it's the loss of your old queen, the one that was fertile. So uh, it is a topic that is uh, very exciting to beekeepers and to the industry because uh, it would be amazing to uh, alleviate the need to inspect every colony to prevent that phenomenon. So uh, we did get the funding on that basis. So it was the main thrust of the project and we developed the methodology, we developed the study specifically to demonstrate uh, our ability to pick up the preparation of the colony for the primary swarm. This was the big question. And then uh, it took us many years to uh, finalize the study and submit it. And when submitting it, I realized that uh, there was a beautiful unexpected add-on to our project. It was this uh, spectacular collection of uh, tooting and quacking that we also acquired uh, unintentionally. And uh, a beekeeper 
in England flagged up to me the possibility of uh, drawing conclusions on the function of the tooting and quacking. So we crammed it into the same scientific publication, and I'm delighted we did, and I'm very proud of it, but it's actually an unexpected add-on to a study for which we got funding, which was entirely dedicated for the prediction of the primary swarm, the one that has no tooting or quacking associated with. And so, uh, Jamie, I have forgotten the question you were asking me. <laughs> yeah, it's not a, it's not a problem um, at all. Basically, I was asking you, um, you, you make the claim that you can predict swarming with over 90% accuracy. So could you talk about uh, how you discovered that part? Okay, so uh, we endeavored at uh, making sure that we had the vibrational logs of uh, multiple colonies before the primary swarm, during the primary swarm, and after the primary swarm. Uh, this was the, the main idea, was to use these and then inspect them afterwards to see whether uh, we could collect uh, a signature that takes place in the vibrations in the colonies, a signature that would be an indicator of the colony preparing for the primary swarm. And uh, this is what we call a phenomenological study. So we have been seeking for a phenomenon. The phenomenon is the following. Is there a signature in the vibrational signals originating from a colony? Is there a signature revealing the preparation for the primary swarm? And so the paper is describing all our efforts to extract this uh, signature. And we did it uh, when uh, we use a vibration that's just been measured for three minutes. And uh, we do it also for uh, a vibration that is uh, taking into account the history of the vibration leading to where you are in the colony. So perhaps uh, I could expand a little bit on this if you like. I don't know where you want me to take this. No, absolutely. I, I think this is fascinating. I think beekeepers would benefit tremendously knowing that there's uh, vibratory signaling prior to the, the swarm that you could use to actually predict when swarms will happen. Okay, fantastic. So uh, the idea has been uh, raised many, many years ago. In fact, uh, as long as uh, in the book by Aristotle, so I think it's 300 years before Christ, the idea that uh, honeybees' uh, sound changes before the primary swarm has been uh, suggested by Aristotle, believe it or not. And then uh, it's been looked into by scientists. Uh, we are not the first ones to look into this uh, idea. And so uh, what uh, our study, uh, however, is uh, pioneering is this extensive continuous uh, recording of the vibrations and the sounds taking place uh, in a colony. And so uh, we, we found that uh, the uh, vibrations that you get and the sounds and vibrations that you get in a colony can uh, indicate uh, the preparation for the swarming, but there is a big problem in the sounds and vibration in the colony. The big problem is the lack of specificity. I like to compare this with uh, the blood pressure measurement in, in people. When I was a young boy, if the doctor was worried about your blood pressure, he would measure it at the clinic and then uh, he would draw conclusions about your blood pressure. This is completely not the case anymore. No doctor trusts a single measurement of your blood pressure anymore. Why? 
because your blood pressure will vary enormously across the day. If you have too much coffee or alcohol or not enough of it, your blood pressure will go up and down accordingly, or if you have had a very stressful day or exciting day and so on and so forth. So a single point measurement of your blood pressure is a very, very poor indicator of your blood pressure. If you want to know well whether you have a condition or not, you need multiple measurements at different times of the day, perhaps across uh, several days. So we found the same uh, with the vibrational measurements. We found that sounds and vibrations in a colony vary enormously across the day, across several days. And uh, if it does reveal a preparation for swarming, it is not the case for a single measurement. So mm -hmm. one of the things we claim in the paper and we demonstrate it is that you can't really draw conclusions from a single measurement. If you go to your bees, put your ear against them and listen to them, you will hear something that is a poor indicator, a poor specificity to what they're doing. So that was the first part of the paper. Sorry, did I interrupt? No, no, I was just going to say, you know, I'm thinking about everything you're telling me right now. And, you know, I guess your normal beekeeper wouldn't be available to just listen or feel the vibrations or listen to the sounds, you know, every day, constantly, all day, right? So I guess I'm trying to figure out how, what recommendations would you have for beekeepers as far as trying to, you know, know when a swarm is about to happen or prevent swarms from happening? Because that's really what we're doing most of the time when we're managing bees. Yeah. So uh, my first, the, one of the first conclusions of the paper is perhaps a little negative, if you like. We're saying Aristotle was wrong, or if he wasn't wrong, then uh, he was overambitious with his statement. We think we have evidence that an instantaneous measurement of your bees, if you listen to the vibrations or the sounds, we think it's a poor indicator of their preparation for swarming. Even though it's true that the sound changes prior to the swarm, sure. it's not going to be of, of uh, much use. So what we're saying, however, just like for the blood pressure, is that if you look at the history of the measurement of the sounds for a few days before the swarm, then there seems to be a signature that is far more specific to the preparation for swarm. So provided you have a little memory device, a device capable of storing the history of a few days of vibrations and sounds in your colony, then you seem, we seem to be in a very strong position, 90% or so uh, accuracy, to sense the preparation of the colony for swarming. So if you want to... Uh, convey this to the beekeeper, I guess what we're saying is that uh, don't trust a single instance of you listening to your bees. Don't trust that it's an indicator of anything specific that they're doing because uh, the sound and vibrations that co a colony makes varies enormously across the day. One of the things that you said in your paper too that I want to highlight is you mentioned the, the, the phrase precision Apiculture. Now, you know, I, I work at a university that does a lot of agriculture research and in other fields of agriculture, they talk about precision agriculture all the time, but I've never heard the term precision apiculture. And we talk about sensing when a colony can swarm, et cetera. What do you mean by precision apiculture? It means that uh, the decisions that are taken by the beekeeper are assisted 
by measurements that uh, man can't possibly undertake. So we suggest the idea that uh, if a beekeeper, in addition to his, his or her skills, in addition to that, if they use uh, devices to provide uh, measurements, uh, for example, with a memory of the history of the vibrations and sounds, etc., then you can uh, improve the uh, decision-taking. You can make more uh, accurate estimates of what's taking place in your colony because you are assisted by measurements you can't possibly undertake manually. So uh, I think this is what is uh, understood under this expression of precision apiculture. It's apiculture that is being assisted by modern equipment, providing the beekeeper with uh, refined measurements of the activity of the colony that they can't possibly get by visual inspections or by listening. Martin, I really love that idea. One of the things that I think is I feel like our industry has been relatively slow to embrace technology. Mm -hmm. You know, when there's other commodities out there where there's, you know, combines and tractors that are driving themselves based on GPS monitoring and things like that, yet we still you know, pick up these boxes and lug them around the country for pollination. We still have to inspect thousands of colonies thoroughly to know what's going on. You, you make a, another statement that I'll, I'll kind of use to conclude. You, you mentioned in the introduction of the manuscript, with respect to the swarming process, if a system were in place that could identify a colony's intent to swarm, a beekeeper would benefit from being alerted to those hives preparing to swarm and would prioritize the appropriate swarm management procedures to those hives, reducing the need and burden for every colony to be regularly inspected, often unnecessarily. Here you're proposing to use sound to predict swarming. We know a lot of people are beginning to do work with temperature and CO2 and weight. I feel like there's so much opportunity for research in this area. That's why I really applaud the work that you guys published on this, just listening to the bees, interpreting these quacks and toots and using this information to make predictions about when colonies will swarm. It's really fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and explaining to our listeners. My pleasure. Can I uh, add the last sentence to this? Oh, please do. So I'm so glad you picked up that sentence because uh, it took me a long time to appreciate uh, the real help to the beekeeper. And uh, not only did it take me a long time to appreciate it, but now that I use it for my own beekeeping practice, I can tell that it is the case. So unexpectedly, this precision apiculture business, I believe, is really helpful to the beekeeper unexpectedly by alleviating the need to inspect those colonies that you know will not swarm. So uh, when I started this work, I thought, wow, it would be great for the beekeeper to know which colony is going to swarm because he's going to manage that swarming and he's going to intervene and help it. I've completely changed my mind. This is not the beauty of this work, in my opinion. And I benefit from it myself, as I said, because I do it myself. The big, the big amazing advantage is that I am less stressed I am far less stressed because those colonies I know who will not swarm, I leave them alone <laughs> to do their honey, to do their business. <laughs> and that's, that is amazing drop of Absolutely. my own personal stress. Yeah. So I want to ask one question that I don't have scripted, but do you think 
similar technology could be used to predict varroa loads or small high beetle populations or nutrition stress, et cetera, in colonies? I know you look specifically at swarming, but there's these other management things we have to go into colonies to address. Do you think this, this same technology can be used to predict those? Keep an eye uh, on our publication. I think it's coming out next year. We have uh, an amazing discovery with the Varroa. So you mentioned the Varroa infestation levels. This is something we've looked into. You will find uh, one scientific paper by Quandor on the detection of uh, Varroa infestation level with acoustics. Unfortunately, the paper is uh, not very convincing because they only have two colonies, one with Varroa, one without. They show that the two sounds are different. It's, it's not convincing that uh, the difference is due to the Varroa infestation level. But uh, I have a PhD student who's dedicated herself for the last two years on, uh, on uh, the effect of Varroa on our measurement. And we have some, some amazing news. Uh, keep an eye on us. I very much hope. Oh, you action. can't do that to we'll us. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> well, you know, Martin, we, we've, there's a scientist here in the U.S. who's also been working on, on sounds and vibrations for some years. And he's, he's made similar predictions about Varroa and beetles and even even potentially the subspecies of bee that we're dealing with, you know, whether it's European descent or African descent. So to make a long story short, I have no reservations at all believing that, you know, this precision apiculture using technologies like this are going to go a long way to helping beekeepers in the future. I think it's great that scientists like you, you know, I look at your specific manuscript. It's got a large author team. So there's a lot of individuals involved, no doubt students and colleagues, et cetera. So I'm happy to see that people are heading in this direction for our beekeeper listeners. You just need to know that these technologies are coming. They, they may not be here today, but they're coming and they should make your beekeeping it easier. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on two bees in a podcast. Absolutely. Thank so thank you, yep. Jamie. Thank you, Amy. Sure. So, folks, you've been listening to Dr. Martin Benchik, the Associate Professor at the School of Science and Technology at Nottingham Trent University. Again, in our show notes, you'll be able to see a link to the paper that thoroughly covers all the topics that we've uh, discussed with Martin in this interview. Thank you so much for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. I've got a trivia question for you. you I'm not, you, I'm not good at trivia. What, what it, is it? It's really simple. <laughs> you know how long I've been working at the university of Florida. Let's see. You started in 2006, right? And it's 2020, so right? <laughs> that would probably be 14 years. Yeah. This, this, did so I do the math the, right? <laughs> you did for the benefit of the listener. It's June, 2020 and August 6th, 2020 is my 14 year anniversary, which is hard to believe it's been 14 years, but it has been. And the reason, Amy, I'm asking you that because before there was Jamie at the University of Florida, I had a predecessor who blazed a trail with Honeybee Extension as well. And it is my pleasure to be introducing him and you and I interviewing him on today's Two Bees in a Podcast. That individual is Dr. Malcolm Sanford. He is a professor emeritus in the Entomology and Nematology Department here at the University of Florida. Malcolm, welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be, I'm glad that I was the predecessor of you. And you're the guy, <laughs> you're cool. the guy now that does it, all the stuff. I got. So if you're my predecessor, does that make you... <laughs> 
<laughs> I can sit back and relax. <laughs> Does that make you my ancestor? Are you my academic ancestor? <laughs> I was just on Ancestry.com, but I didn't see you there. For me. Yeah, we're probably, we're probably not related, but academically we are at least. So, Malcolm, you had the job here at the University of Florida before me. We're going to get into a lot of that, but before we get there, could you kind of briefly tell us your story? You know, how did you arrive at the University of Florida in the first place? How did you get involved with bees? What steps brought you here? Okay, well, I've got a, a kind of a long history of sorts. Uh, I was in the Peace Corps back in the 60s. And then uh, back in 1966, I got out of the Peace Corps and I went to the American Institute for Foreign Trade at that time, an international business organization. And then it was 1968, and uh, I was draftable, uh, potentially draftable at that time for the Vietnam conflict. And so I went down to, in, into Phoenix, Arizona. That's where I lived at the time. I went downtown, and I joined the Navy. <laughs> I joined the aviation part of the Navy. I thought, well, I got to do something. So, And I had a friend who was a Marine, and he was in the Marine aviation. So I went down there and joined the Navy. And uh, I went to uh, a little bit of time. I went through officer training school. Then I went a little bit of time as pilot training over at uh, Pensacola. I didn't like that. It really didn't. Uh, it didn't really. Uh, I wasn't really a flyer much. So, but, I, but I, before you go any further, you can fly an airplane. You know, you're trained to do that? I mean, this is news Maybe to me. Maybe that's so. why he didn't continue, because he couldn't well, I mean, fly well, an airplane. He's, he's talking to us, so he didn't crash an airplane at least. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, no, I can't. I mean, I quit before I was became a, a pilot. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so okay. when I quit, right. you know, it was just too much of a, it was too much of an invest in my time, because I, I would have had, but, you know, uh, two, two years of training in flight school. Then I would have been have have set five years of being in the fleet for, for piloting, you know. That had been ten years out of my life. I just couldn't do it, so I quit. And I went, and so they sent me to. Um, I was in the aviation branch of the Navy. That's the Brown Shoe Navy, and so I was uh, sent to California as a uh, uh, basically I was a desk guy, a desk jockey. I was an administrative officer, and from that in 1969 we. Uh, we went to Vietnam on the USS Ticonderoga, a CVA-14 uh, at the time, and we did what was called, uh, we did, we, we were stationed off a of Yankee station. We bombed North, North Vietnam for six months. When I came back home, that was the last uh, deployment of that, of that ship, and then when I started to come home, the, the war started to wind down. And so I got back kind of at the right time when I got out just after the war was over. So then what was I going to do? Well, I went home. I was, my folks were in Georgia, so I went to the university. I didn't, I didn't go to the University of Georgia at the time, but I went home, and I, I worked around, looked for things, and finally I went to the University of Georgia. Yes, you was, did. Go dogs. That's go, right. Yeah, you're right. Always, it all comes back to the University of Georgia. Between the hedges, I, baby. <laughs> just thought I'd say that. Thank, thank you. Thank oh, you. I, oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit, you know, problematic because I'm not much of a – I, I'm not much of a Gator fan, Frank. I'm not so much of a football <gasps> fan, generally. Uh, Sorry. That's well. fair. Well, let me tell you my football history. Uh, I was <laughs> the first hired you the quarterback <laughs> for the University of Georgia. <laughs> since you also learn how to fly airplanes? <laughs> no, I'm going to pull out of your hat, Malcolm. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll tell you about it as we go along here. So anyway, uh, so I went to the University of Georgia. I had what, because I was in, involved in Latin America. 
uh, in the Peace Corps, and I, I speak Spanish, and I like Latin America, and I visited down there and all the rest of it. I, t I studied geography, Latin American geography at the University of Georgia. And when my, uh, in my uh, situation, I was going to, uh, uh, had to develop a thesis, a kind of concept of what I was going to do, what, what kind of geography can you do? And so I got this idea, my father was a fisherman way back when, I got this idea that what the, I could go down to Latin America, I could study the fishing industry. So I proposed that topic to my uh, boss at the time. And uh, he says, okay, fine. And I, I actually got a grant ready from the U.S. Steel Corporation to go down to Yucatan Peninsula and study fishing, the fishing techniques. And um, before I did that, I took a course in beekeeping from Dr. at that time uh, uh, from... Uh, <laughs> Was it Georgia? Was it Al Dietz? Yes, that's exactly right. Thank you. Well, John. you're very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, I'm liable to have some senior moments. That's okay. I'm liable to have some junior. <laughs> that's moments. one of them. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Al, Al, and and so then I, I took from Al Dietz the, the the geography. I mean the uh, beekeeping thing, and then I went down, and uh, my young wife and I at the time we drove down to Yucatan. From from uh, Gaines, I mean from uh, Athens, Georgia. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> yeah, right. And so uh, when I got down there, though, and, be, and before, I found out that really there wasn't much data about be, about fishing. I didn't have any in with the fishing industry. I knew nothing about what was going on. There was no real industry anyway. It was just a bunch of guys, you know, fishing with nets and so on, and individual basis. But when I got to Yucatan, what did I find? Let me guess, bees? Bees, <laughs> that's right. At that time, the Yucatan Peninsula was the largest, bee, largest honey production unit in the world. And most of that honey was going to New York City and was being purchased by a guy by the name of R.B. Wilson Company. And so in Yucatan at that time, there were co cooperatives. There was people doing all kinds of things with bees and all that. And so I switched my... Uh, from fishing, I switched to bees. And so I had a good time down there. I spent a lot of time and I talked to people and, uh, and I wrote a, a, the a thesis on that. Uh, and then I came back and then I went uh, and tried to do something else. I thought, well, I still, I'm still interested in, in academics and I'm, all of a sudden I'm interested in bees. Why? <laughs> I got bee fever. I guess you Why know. Why do you sound so surprised? I mean, this is. <laughs> Bees are very addictive. That's what's funny. The whole irony in this story is that you meant to go get hooked by fish, but you got hooked by bees. <laughs> That's right. And, and you know, again, bee fever <laughs> is something that, that comes on people. It's kind of like the COVID virus, you know, it's out there. <laughs> well played, all Malcolm. The time. You're liable to catch it at any moment. <laughs> and so I, then I, I said, okay, well, hey, I could I'd take, go to entomology. So I went over there and I got a job. Al Dietz gave me a job in the lab to raise queens and do all kinds of great stuff with bees and, and so on. And I spent, you know, a couple, three years there. And then he, he uh, uh, after, after, just as I graduated, he left on a sabbatical. And I became the, the professor of apiculture at the University of Georgia for a short time before I was hired at the Ohio State University as extension specialist in beekeeping at that time, set in 1978. I think it was, yeah, 78. And um, the guy that hired me was Walter Rothenbuehler. Wow, that's really neat. 
Yeah. Now, Amy probably doesn't know who Walter Rothenbuehler is, but if you look at my stuff, you'll see what he is. He was the, he was the guy, the guy for beekeeping uh, research in terms of breeding honeybees and so on. He was the guy, and so I was really proud to be an extension guy under him for a while. And then all of a sudden, a job came up at the University of Florida. And uh, so I applied to that, and I was all of a sudden hired at the University of Florida. What well, year was that, Malcolm? What, that was, what, what was year was that? Yep, what year was that? 81. 81. So, so, Malcolm, we're about to get into your career here at the University of Florida. Okay. That's what the rest of our questions are. But before okay. I get there, you know, with your, with your varied background and the fact that you're retired now, I'm just curious if you could briefly list what some of your hobbies are. What do you do now when you're not working with bees? Oh, well, I'm, what, I, what I am is an actor. So, you know, and of course, anybody, and you are one too, anybody that's, anybody that's involved in, uh, in extension <laughs> yep, or exactly. teaching mm-hmm. or academics, you got to become an actor. I mean, that's the way it is. We're all it's actors. Good. This is our fake personalities, our radio. That's right. We're much nicer in real life, aren't oh, we? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so that's, that, that's part of what I am beyond, uh, but I'm really a writer. And the most thing I'm most proud about in terms of writing are my two books. I've got two books that I've written. Um, one is, is the Story's Guide to Keeping Honeybees, which is really a good seller. And it's, I'm very lucky to be involved with a publication outfit that is not involved in bees. And that means that they have an incredible uh, reach for selling this uh, particular information because they're not involved with bees. They're involved with everybody else. So right. I'm very happy to be there. And then in, 19, in 2006, I wrote a book called Beekeeping Without Borders. And that book, uh, published by, uh, uh, in, in the UK at, at the moment, uh, Northern Bee Books, uh, right. is a uh, history of my two sabbaticals during my career at the University of Florida. So Malcolm, Malcolm, we'll make a point to link both of those books in our show notes on our website Great. for two bees okay. in a podcast so that our listeners can find them there. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. And uh, 1989, I was in Italy. And in 1997, I was in uh, France for six That's months. Awesome. So, okay. So you're an actor. You like to write. And that is a lot of what we do in extension sometimes and just communicating through writing, through I guess, acting, right? When you're teaching in front of an audience and on a stage. And so my question to you is what were your primary extension, you know, what was your primary extension focus when you were at the Honeybee Lab? Were you familiar with extension before that? Or, you know, were you kind of just learning along the way? Yeah, I, I was, I was, I learned along the way. I was never a researcher. I was always an actor. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> you know, so I, I really, when I became an academic, I became an extension specialist. And so, you know, and, and, and that's that. It, so I'm not a researcher. I don't have any research focus. I'm the guy who goes out and tries to find people doing research and tell the public what the hell they're doing and how, <laughs> how it should, how it, you know, I'm a translator in a way. You know. Sure. I'm a translator too because I speak Spanish and I can, you know, in English. And so I translate between Spanish and English, just like I translate. If you talk to people 
between bees and the other world. So at the time that you were an extension, you were hired on as 100% extension. 100% extension at that time. Mm -hmm. The last, probably the last guy to be hired at that rate. I don't know. But after, after I was there for a while, it became, became obvious that 100% extension doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, well, I'm 100% extension. Well, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, well, he's, I, he's talking I, about the faculty. That's, that's <laughs> true. Later. That's true. Yeah. Well, you're right, so Malcolm. You're right. Most, most, I'm trying to think about this. I'm actually 70% extension. Mm -hmm. That's probably the largest extension appointment of any faculty members I know. And most faculty members are 50% or below. And in fact, probably most have zero to no extension appointments. So well, now I have a, a new point. goal. I have a new goal go. for you. Malcolm, how <laughs> many beekeepers were in the area? How many beekeepers were you working with when you were an extension? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, I was an, I, not only was I an extension guy, but I was involved in international stuff. So, yes, mm -hmm. I was Florida extension specialist, but I was also, the thing what I'm really pr kind of proud about is I was the guy who, was the international representative for beekeeping extension in the United States for the whole career that I was existed in, which means I went around the world and talked to people about bees in their own language and all the rest of it in a lot of different uh, areas. And for that was my, so that was my, you know, uh, you want to call it my focus. That would have been my focus at that time. And there was no how you have honeybee lab, of course, what, you know, there was only me. There was no money. That's the other aspect of it. Jamie came and he got all the money. Like before me, there was no money. Well, Malcolm, you're, you're actually, um, you know, raising an interesting point. I was hired in 2006, which is when, quote, colony collapse disorder was first discovered. But you, you know, you mentioned being in there in 81, and, and the, there were a couple decades scattered through there where, where bee research, bee extension, ex, ex, et cetera, was kind of uh, dwindling. In fact, I was told at the time that it was possible that U.S. position might be the last true B scientist position that comes around. And of course, CCD happened and everybody and their brothers opening a, a B program at, at universities all around the world. But you're right, you know, during your time, there was less funding for bees, less emphasis on bees, which, which is odd given that, you know, you were hired in 81, but 87 was when Varroa was found in the U.S., right? So you had a really big thing happen while you were serving uh, on the faculty here at the University of Florida. I had three big things happen. All right, what were they? First one was uh, the arrival of the tracheal mite in 1984. Then the arrival of the varroa mite in 1987. Mm -hmm. Then the arrival of the small high beetle in 1996. <laughs> Wait, did you introduce all these things, Malcolm, from <laughs> yeah, your travels? <laughs> I feel like there's a... <laughs> yeah, so I went through three, three real critical kinds of developments uh, that, you know, during my career at the university, and, and they were, you know, informed by those particular things. And then what, what happened, of course, to the industry, before I came, when I started as a as a extension guy, the, the primary industries in Florida were making honey, you know, creating honey and selling it, and creating bees and queens, rearing queens and package bees. Well, 1984 came, and most of the packages were sold at that time, and when I got there in 81, were sold to Canada. Well, why was that? Well, the Canadians had this wonderful area up there, 
for making honey during the summer, but boy, you didn't want to winter bees in Canada. So what became an issue is they killed all the bees in Canada and they bought new bees every year from Georgia and Florida, and Mississippi, and all across the southern states. And that was their that was their that was their their business model until guess what? They closed the border in 1984. Tracheal mites came and that finished the whole thing. Wow. Well, let's let's kind of dive into that. You know, Amy has asked you what was your primary extension focus while at UF. I'm curious, what are some of your main extension accomplishments while you were here at the University of Florida? I mean, I mean, I know what what some of them were, but tell us a little bit about your programs, you know, your newsletter, your, your institute, things like that. Yeah, well, there were two things basically that at the time I was hired were the big deals here. One was the beekeeper, that was called the Beekeepers Institute. That was like the first uh, sort of bee college, uh, you know, uh, idea. It wasn't a bee college. It was a, it was a summer camp. <laughs> That's really what it was. And so around the state, I was responsible for developing every year some kind of an uh, academic uh, venue and some kind of a program uh, to entertain and teach beekeepers uh, for a particular week, generally in, in August in Florida. And uh, Wow, you sure picked the hottest month. Well, <laughs> that's well, I didn't pick it. This was all picked for me. You know, it was like okay. I, just, I just stepped into it and there I was, you know. So, okay. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that was the particular focus of mine. The other thing is because I told you I'm a writer. So I started my newsletter back in, when I was in Ohio. And then I continued my newsletter when I got to Florida. And my newsletter, you know, at this point, I mean, at that point, when I, when I retired, it had about 3,000 people on the list. Wasn't That's great. Historians, it was other people. What did you put on the newsletter? Everything. I mean, I was a reporter. You know, it's like, okay, this is what's happening here. This is what's going on here. This is where we're doing this, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Malcolm, those are still archived on your website, are they I've been not? that for 30 years. You can, <laughs> you, can buy, yeah. you can see all my stuff for 30 years on the website. Okay, well, we'll make sure and link that uh, in the show notes again for the listeners. <laughs> right, right. So, so that, that was my charge at the time. And then I did other things, you know. I mean, there, there was the state association. I was involved with that. Um, and there were other kinds of things that come up. There was a, I did a feeding study as part of an actual research study uh, on the, the, what was called at that time the Beltsville Bee Diet. It was a kind of an interesting diet developed at the Beltsville Bee Lab. And uh, I was one of the first people to do that uh, and, or try to do that. I didn't do it very well. And the reason I didn't, which I realized <laughs> afterwards, was it was partly my fault, but it was also partly the fault of the design because it had to do with beekeepers. And we bought this food, we brought this food in from Beltsville and said, okay, beekeepers, here's what we want you to do. We want you to feed this stuff to bees and give us a report about what, you know, what it's doing. Is it working or not according to your, according to your observations? Now, these beekeepers that I started out with, the guys were in the panhandle. Of course, I lived in central Florida, so I wasn't out there every day out in the field. But I go over there once in a while and say, well, how are you doing? You know, what's with this thing? What's, we, had a, we had a whole research protocol, me and a, and a guy by the, uh, who was a bee inspector at the time. And so over time, I, I realized, you know, I'm not getting any information from these guys. 
we've got a, we've got a plan. We told them what to do. What's going on? <laughs> so I was in a truck with a guy one day. I said, you know, what is happening here? Where's your report? He says, what do you mean report? Well, I said, you know, we're giving you this food. We expect you to have some kind of a research report. Where is it? He says, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> it turned out it was under the seat of his truck. He never used it. He never used it, yeah. <laughs> so, so basically, there was no data to come out of that much. You could, you know, could talk about things, but it really wasn't very significant because obviously you can't have significance if you don't have any data. And so it kind of blew up, but uh, that, was my, that was my one and only real actual research. <laughs> it, it can be, you know, thing. you know, you're raising an interesting point that's kind of worth mentioning, and I don't want to chase this rabbit too much, but, you know, we, when we do research, we have, you know, usually two options to manage the colonies ourselves or to work with beekeepers, and both systems have drawbacks um, to them, yeah, but, but you're right. definitely mentioned, you know, potentially one of the drawbacks work working beekeepers. We know a lot of you beekeepers out there, don't, don't panic, this isn't intended to be mean, but, um, you know, it can be difficult because, because beekeepers have you know, management systems that they have to live by and work by, et cetera. And so sometimes it's hard to fit in the uh, rigidity of a research project into the system that they're trying to follow. So I, I can certainly sympathize with, <laughs> with what you're saying, Malcolm. Well, if you I look think at the, the first thing that I heard, one of the first articles on my new website, beekeep.info, you'll see a title there, What Beekeepers and Researchers Want. And it goes deeply into this area we're talking about there. I feel like, yeah, we're definitely going to have to share that. But I think it's so funny that Jamie asks about extension accomplishments and Malcolm, you know, told us one of his, his fails that he had, which it wasn't all you, but it's just so funny because those stories always, you know, they, they last That's with right. us forever. They come up. Yeah, they, they never go away. <laughs> so Malcolm, so it, it sounds like you were working primarily with beekeepers. It sounds like you were traveling, talking about bees, I assume, to non-beekeepers as well. Um, so obviously you had to teach, but I'm wondering, did you have to teach for undergraduate students or have grad students as a faculty member? Um, even if you were hired on as 100% extension, did you do teaching and have courses? I did do teaching. I taught the B, a B introductory B class. And then after the end of my career, I was teaching the introductory entomology class. And so uh, I definitely had, I had one graduate student. That was Great. it. And he, it. Didn't, he didn't make it through. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, he had, he had some problems and so on. And so it, 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 it finally, it, I finally realized, well, this guy just can't, isn't going to make it. So we've parted company. But that was the only graduate student I had. Yeah. Was your, were, uh, were your beekeeping classes, were those in person? Oh, yeah. They were all in person, right? Oh, yeah. I was the actor. You know, I got to get in there and get acting. Yeah, you know, that's I fair. Got in front of the standard, the standard stuff. And so was introductory entomology the same way. You know, I mean, insects are just absolutely incredible uh, organisms. And, and uh, honeybee is just one of them. I mean, but the, I love insects all around. That's one of the things when I, when I, I mean, I'm in this co-housing complex over here. And every quarter, guess who shows up? Florida pest control. Oh, there you go. I was I'm like, like um, uh, the tax I'm man. Not, I'm I'm not 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 <laughs> flag in. You got a plastic thing they stick on the lawn. Don't you know? Don't walk here. Pesticides are being applied. They run around the. <laughs> and I'm going. What in the? Why? What? Why? Well, the problem is I live with people who who can't stand insects. They don't even want to see a single one around. 
And so I'm just stuck with that, uh, that mindset. But for me, it's just crazy. Well, well, Malcolm, let me, let me get you to think back about, you know, your, your career that spanned three decades kind of here. So when you were here at UF, you know, over the two decades that you were here, what are some of the significant changes that you saw in your time working with Extension? You already talked about the introduction of tracheomites, the introduction of Roa, the introduction of small high beetles. So clearly these have had substantial impacts on the industry and have brought about a lot of changes, not only here in the U.S., but around the world. But what are, what are some other things that you feel like you've noticed change over the years while you were a faculty member and even since then? Well, yeah, you know, if you look at my, have you seen my, uh, my Opus uh, video that Umberto developed? I did, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, at 30, and that basically covers, you know, what a lot of what I saw even after my career was over. And of course, the big thing is the, this incredible shift from being honey producers to being pollinators. Honey, the industry. Industry, you know, became a pollinating industry instead of a honey production industry. That's pretty and, cool. Yeah. And all the stuff really. that was involved in that and still going on. And of course, Varroa and all these other kind of organisms, you had to be on the, always on the lookout for the next fix, you know, the next pesticide or the next way to do something to, you know, keep these things at bay. And uh, so that was part of it as well. Uh, these shifts that are there going on, they're continuing to go on. I'm still involved in some of that. So, Malcolm, what were some of your favorite moments during your career? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I, uh, specific moments. I, I met a lot of great people in beekeeping. I went to a lot of meetings uh, and a lot of international meetings. And so, you know, I, I became, uh, as I said, I was kind of the international outreach for beekeeping extension at that time. Mm -hmm. So I knew Italians, I knew French people, I knew, you know, Spanish people, I knew people in Latin America, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, so possibly my, my biggest thing really at the moment that you can look back on are these two books that I wrote uh, and my 30 year, uh, you know, and I'm still doing the newsletter as a matter of fact, uh, I've shifted a little bit to a, a kind of a, Cost you a dollar right now. If you want to get my newsletter, it costs you a buck. <laughs> <laughs> Can you afford a buck or not? Well, thirty people have said they could, so I'm writing a newsletter now for thirty people, <laughs> for for a dollar a piece. Well, yeah, it's, it's so it's kind of a hobby for me right now, sure. and that may go away. It's hard to know exactly, but the, that that's those are that. But the 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 shifts the shifts that have occurred have all been. Um, Again, that kind of magnitude, uh, that went from something really high to something really low. So that's kind of been, that was my kind of my, uh, you know, at that time that answered your question. Yeah, Malcolm, you mentioned some things that I think too about my own career is I've, I've also been to a lot of meetings and met a lot of beekeepers, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And that's always one of the most rewarding parts is to see how, you know, they live, how they keep bees what the issues are that they face and, you know, just how they're, they're people, they're people like everyone else and the struggles that they have and the successes they have. It's always well, that's right. that's kind exactly of rewarding right. to see that. Yeah. And then that's, that's one of the really things, interesting things about bee, the bee industry, if you want to call it an industry, and that's or the, the beekeeping, the, 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 the activity of bees is that there, every place you go, there are beekeeper societies and there are people that are doing, asking the same questions. <laughs> you know, if you're in Slovenia, 
you get the same questions as if you're in the United States. So that's right. Same that's right. Idea. Yeah. Well, Malcolm, let me let me ask kind of this final question with with all that you've done and all that you've accomplished, all that you've seen and been a part of over the year. What do you kind of consider your legacy contribution just to the University of Florida in general, but also the beekeeping industry? What what are you most proud of having done and, and that, that you believe has made the most impact for the beekeeping? Well, I, I hope it's my publication record. You know, I've not just written a newsletter. Mm-hmm. I've written for the beekeeping press for 30 years, too. And so Bee Culture Magazine, American Bee Culture, Bee Business when it was available. I mean, all, all kinds of things like that. So really, it, it would have to be my, you know, in, in, in kind of summary, my publication record. Yeah, it sounds like you had a huge influence and you're pretty active, you know, as far as having your fingers in lots of lots of things around the world. That's great. Well, again, and one of the problems there is, as uh, it's a problem, but one of the issues there is how do you measure your impact? Yeah, that's a question Jamie and I ask each other every day. I'm sure it is. <laughs> and that's, that's, the educator, that's the educator's dilemma. You know, you're, you go out there and you develop something and you you think it's important and you, you deliver it. And then how do you judge, you know, your effectiveness in terms of whether it was understood and are people actually doing it? Well, Malcolm, my guess is, is that your, you know, your generation, the academics that were, you know, retiring maybe in the early 2000s, your generation is the one that really went through some fundamental paradigm shifts in the beekeeping industry. You know, Varroa was big, the change from a focus on honey production to the change of a focus on pollinations, big, you know, there's been an explosive growth of beekeepers even recently, you know, all of that training you did for hundreds, probably thousands of beekeepers, all of the individuals who would have read all your written works, attended a Malcolm Sanford presentation, et cetera, you know, they benefited and it really paved the way for, what we are having to do today in our own programs, right? Right. I inherited the position that you had here at the University of Florida. So, you know, a, a lot of your legacy continues on. I know when I travel a lot, I hear a lot of people, you know, refer to you and mention you even when I'm going nationally or internationally. So, so everyone, as we wind down our interview with, with Malcolm Sanford, you know, he's already mentioned earlier that one of his hobbies is acting. He's in a lot of play productions. You can see all that on, on his bio link that we'll include in the show notes. But in there, he's re- had to put some songs that he's recorded. I'm assuming, Malcolm, you had to do that to show off your vocal range for the plays that you are hoping to be a part of. But you recorded one specifically about honeybees. Could you tell us just briefly about that? Because what we're going to do is as we're kind of fading out of this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast, we're going to play an excerpt from your uh, song. So tell me all about that song. What's the name of the song? It's, it's the one about honeybee, be my lover, or something like that. I listened to it recently. I, it's been going through. My, I even let my kids oh my listen goodness. to it. They've been humming it around the house. So it's, it's honeybee, honey something, be my girl, or something. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Tell me all about it, Malcolm. <laughs> honeycomb. 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 That's honeycomb. it. That's it. Honeycomb. It, it, listeners, you're going to be able to hear it. Again, as we fade out of this. And it is me singing. It's not the other guy. Wait, that's you singing in it, (laughs) Malcolm? It is me singing. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. That is so funny. (laughs) No, it's not. It's not me. So, Malcolm, I think our listeners are going to really, it's going to, it's going to put the icing on this. this There you go. All right. (laughs) So, I just want to say thanks for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. I want to thank you for all that you've done. And, And again, we're going to link as much as we can about you and your your books, your website, et cetera, in our show notes today. So if anybody wants to hear more uh, or read more, they can do that as well. So Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, I appreciate very much the opportunity. And uh, take a look at uh, my videos that Umberto did. I think that's, those are important things to take a look at. All right, absolutely. And guys, what he's referring to is, uh, we, we, you know, Dr. Umberto Boncristiani here in our laboratory has an inside uh, Hive TV's uh, series that he has on YouTube. And so he interviewed Malcolm, and we can make sure and link that in our show notes as well. Everybody, that was Dr. Malcolm Sanford, who's Professor Emeritus of the Entomology and Hematology Department here at the University of Florida. He was my predecessor. So thank you guys for listening to this segment on Two Bees in a Podcast. And they called it honeycomb. And they roamed the world and they gathered all of the honeycomb into one sweet ball. And the honeycomb from a million trips made my baby's lips. Oh, honeycomb, won't you be my baby? Well, honeycomb, be my own. Got a hank of hair and a piece of bone. I made a walk and talk and honeycomb. Well, honeycomb, won't you be my baby? Well, honeycomb, be my own. What a darn good life when you've got a wife like Honeycomb. Honeycomb. And the Lord said, now that I made a bee, I'm going to look all around for a green, green tree. And I made a little tree. And I guess okay, and we're back for the question and answer segment. Jamie, you've got three questions. You've got a couple of answers. 18, 18 answers, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Took you a little bit to figure out what, how many answers you had. 18. That's well, right. I'm sure it's going to be 18. I want you to... <laughs> To, to count me as I'm trying to answer the questions that you asked. Okay. I don't have 18 fingers, though, so I don't know how to do that. <laughs> well, All right. Neither do I. <laughs> Is so that the, common? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so the first question we have, what does it mean when beekeepers are treatment-free? I hear this all the time that people are using natural beekeeping practices. And I mean, honestly, I guess I have that question, too. What does that actually mean? <laughs> I was about to say, Amy, that it means their bees are dying, but I know that we'd get a lot of hate mail <laughs> yeah. if, if I said that. We might. Yeah, no, in, in all seriousness, there is an, an, a huge range of what that means to beekeepers. There's no formal definition, but generally what it means is that they're staying away from the synthetic treatments uh, for the various diseases or pests. For example, they won't use antibiotics to control European fowl brood or respond to American fowl brood. They won't use Apigard uh, or they won't use Apivar or they won't use, you know, Checkmite or Apistan to control Varroa. They won't use Checkmite for small hive beetles, et cetera. The idea is that they're using a lot of more natural things to try to address bee issues. They might be investing in resistant stock, you know, VSH queens or hygienic queens or New World Carniolans or, or Russian honeybee queens. They might be using things such as screen bottom boards. There, there, it's important to know that there is a distinction between natural beekeeping and treatment-free beekeeping because natural beekeeping, and again, this one also has a sliding definition, but natural beekeeping most commonly means you let the bees do what the bees do. Mm-hmm. And, and you just kind of step back and, and maybe here and there try to facilitate what it is that they do. And to give you an example, a lot of purest natural beekeepers, they allow their colonies to swarm. It's just a natural part of the bee life cycle. So why should we stop that is, is kind of the premise. So what you'll see in natural beekeeping is, is things like that. They might keep bees in smaller hive boxes, et cetera. But there, there is a growing movement towards this. Uh, there's, I've seen treatment-free and natural beekeeping seminars and symposia popping up all around the world. But it's, it's this idea that we are going to try to keep bees the way the bees want to be kept uh, you know, more hands-off, fewer chemicals, fewer carousides, 
fewer uh, or, or less management strategies. And the idea is that if, if bees are allowed to do what they do best, then they don't need so much intervention from us. I will tell you, and it, well, like I've told thousands of people who ask me this questions, I have no problem with people keeping bees the way that they want to. But I will tell you, again, this might get some hate mail, that this often produces populations of bees that have very high uh, mite loads or other disease and pest loads. And, and there's been no good research on this. So I'm not saying that this is a problem, but I will tell you a lot of commercial or even sideline beekeepers uh, believe that a lot of their problems uh, might be harbored in, in, in high numbers and these kind of treatment free beekeepers who, who say, you know, I'm going to just let my bees do what they want to and the best survive, et cetera. Well, that, that can promote high populations of varroa and other things. So there's this kind of battle between the two groups at the moment. And what I would say is the jury's still out. There's just not a lot of data. Uh, but I will say that my official opinion is that as beekeepers, as we have responsibilities to manage the diseases and pests that bees might otherwise struggle to manage. So I have no problem doing what it takes with it within the realm of what's legal to control diseases and pests, but that's, that's a, a, a big umbrella overview of sure. something really hard to define at the moment. It's a bit amorphous. Yeah. I feel like we could have a whole segment on it actually. In um, fact, we should, Amy. Yeah. I think it would be really good to bring in some people who are treatment free or people who consider themselves natural beekeepers. Mm-hmm. But, but it, you know, I know Tom Seeley has, has written very uh, recently about Darwinian beekeeping and, and this idea. He's got, I think, Darwinian. Dar, Dar, Darwinian. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's, it's such a new term. It's, 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 <laughs> How you want to say it's how it can be said, but Darwinian, Darwinian beekeeping, Darwinian beekeeping, this idea, I think he's got like uh, kind of a 10 commandments that he's put out based on all of his years of research, you know, the size of colonies, how spaced the colony should be at all. Darwinian beekeeping. So the idea is that, you know, it's, it's growing and maybe he'd be a good person to interview about this, but I can tell you, Amy, it's a hot button topic because- Both, you know, both sides of the corn, the corn, see, you've got my tongue tied, both <laughs> sides of the coin, you know, believe themselves to be adamantly right. And, and uh, they, they both often scream at the other. And the truth is, is probably it's somewhere in the middle and it certainly needs to be explored further. That's fair. It's, it is lunchtime. So you're probably thinking about corn. Okay. <laughs> let's go to the next question. No, that's always lunchtime though in my world. <laughs> so the second question we have is, is Am- Amdro, is Amdro safe to use around the hives? What is Amdro? Oh, so Amdro is a ant control agent. And uh, I always answer questions like this when I have problems with ants around my hives that some of the other ant control strategies aren't working, then I Mm -hmm. use Amdro around hives or, or products like it. So that's not an endorsement. It just is me saying that I've considered it safe enough to use around the hive to actually use it myself. I will give you an example. My wife actually did her PhD work at the University of Georgia, and she had a tremendous fire ant problem around a lot of her research colonies. So we actually put out uh, products like Amdro around the hive and never noticed any negative effects Mm -hmm. on our bees. So some people are concerned because Amdro specifically are these kind of yellow granule type things that look like pollen pellets. So the concern is bees might pick it up like pollen. and Uh, I got it. I just never saw that. Now, you could argue that if, if bees are on the ground and being exposed to this stuff around the hives, it, it might could be an issue. I just, I just never saw populations of bees go back when we were using this, but I did see the population of ants go back. So it seemed to be 
helpful in our very specific scenario. Okay. Um, talking about bees and the decline in population numbers, this leads to my last question for you is, you know, I've had calls from people who will see one or two dead bees on the ground. And so my question is, how many dead bees is enough to actually be concerned? You know, are we worried about a couple of bees? Well, when that's that's really a great question. Yeah. You know, people, people panic and freak out about everything in the bee world. Me, me too, when I was a, a, a brand new beekeeper, you know, mm-hmm. it, it goes back to the small hive beetle questions that we've had in the past. You know, people open the lid of a colony and see a small hive beetle and want to throw everything they can in that colony <laughs> to try to stop the beetle. Yeah. And likewise, you just asked me about ants, you know, around the, the hive and we talk about the use of Amdro or similar products. Just because I see an ant, maybe I've got to go out and treat around. Well, my question is, is do you really have a problem that that warrants treatment? Now you're asking specifically, well, what about dead bees? How many Mm -hmm. is too many? Well, if you think about it practically, a beehive can have 40,000 individual worker bees and, and they're all alive. And what, what do we know about things that live? They die. They're going to die. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So if you've got a 40,000 bee colony, you're going to see dead bees outside the hive. That's just a fact of life. These things are going to die. Every one of them is going to die, you know, in six to eight weeks. And they're going, their bodies are going to have to go somewhere. Generally speaking, bees are pretty good at hauling off their dead. You know, they'll fly them some meters away from the hive, 10, 15, 20, 40 meters away from the hive. So usually around my hives, I'll only see 15 to 100 dead bees or, or decaying carcasses. I would argue that when you start seeing piles of bees where, where bee bodies are accumulating, 50 to 100, it warrants looking in the hive to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. But if everything in the hive is otherwise normal, you've got a laying queen, this brood pattern is solid, you've got a population of bees representative or appropriate for that time of year then I wouldn't be too concerned. I've had situations where I've had 100 dead bees in front of my hive and and not be worried at all. But I've had situations where I've had 100 dead bees in front of my hive and been scared to death because I've looked in the hive and see what's happening. I think it's a bigger issue if you see a lot of crawling bees on the ground outside around the hive, 10, 15 or more. Or if you're starting to see piles of bees, 50 or 100, then you'll want to go in the hive and, and, and determine, am I seeing something in this hive about this colony that, that, that gives me concern and, and, and gives me reason to believe that that pile of bees outside the hive is a problem? Or am I seeing things that are absolutely okay, strong, mm-hmm. populous, life looks good. Now, all of a sudden, that little pile of 50 to 100 bees is not a problem. So look for wandering bees, look for that accumulating pile of bees, and that should be a trigger to go into the hive. But it's possible to see both of those things and get into the hive and still say, you know what? things still look good. It's not yeah. And I was, I was also going to say, so when I was living up in Virginia and beekeeping, we had something called winter, which we don't really have here in Florida. And uh, no, you know, that was, <laughs> so we would have like, you know, we would have two feet of snow and the snow would go and, you know, hit the entrance. And of course, once it started to warm up, it, that was just the hygienic behavior of bees tossing dead bodies out. Right. So that's totally normal. So some of this could be normal as well. It could be, but I will tell you, Amy, by the time I'm seeing 150, 200 bees, I mean, that that does start to trigger me to say, okay, sure. even if things look normal in the hive, that's still a pile. And then I'll tell you a couple of reasons for this. Number one, the bees should be carrying off the body. So I shouldn't be seeing 
a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And number two, when, when bees that are deposited outside of the hive, you know, there's ants and all kinds of stuff that very quickly take out those bodies. So if I'm starting to see 100, 150, you know, bees pile up, then, then there's a problem with the, the undertakers who are hauling off those bodies or their bees are dying at a rate that's faster than the ants themselves can eat it. And so those things kind of hmm. give me pause for alarm. Certainly, if I'm seeing a thousand bees or more, then I, I have reason to believe that there's massive die-offs and significant problems. So, so like I said, just summarize my statement. If I'm seeing 10 or 15 living bees wandering on the ground outside the hive, I'm going to go in that hive and figure out what's going on. If I see 50 to 100 dead bodies outside the hive, I'm going to go in that hive and see what's going on in the colony. Great. All right. Thank you for that. My pleasure. So everyone, thank you so much for your question and answer, question and answers. Thank you so much for your questions. Jamie, thank you so much for your answers. Um, If you guys have more questions, please feel free to email us. I know people have been emailing or messaging me on Facebook or Instagram um, on our Honeybee page. And of course, if you do like the podcast, don't forget to go to your podcast app and rate us if possible. That would be great. everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. We would like to give an extra special thank you to our audio engineer, James Weaver, and to our podcast coordinator, Jacqueline Ayenje. Without their hard work, Two Bees in a Podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. <laughs>